This podcast will be discussing issues related to gender-based violence and may be upsetting for some listeners. On December 6, 1989, a 25-year-old man named Maclepin opened fire at L'Ecole Polytechnique in Montreal with a semi-automatic weapon, killing 14 women and injuring 13 others, while yelling, I hate feminists. The attack was quickly followed by updated policies on gun control and discussion around violence against women, with the government naming December 6th the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. That was 30 years ago. In April of last year, another 25-year-old man named Alec Manassian drove a van into a Toronto crowd, killing eight women and two men and injuring 16 others. He later self-identified as an incel, or involuntary celibate, a growing subculture of men who blame women for not having sex with them and for other grievances in their own lives. While these instances made headlines as a couple of the deadliest attacks in Canada, these are just some examples of a broader problem. The continuing, and sometimes subtle, gender-based violence happening in our country and on our campuses. My name is Moira Wilson. And my name is Kanzid Uyenzi. And this is One in Five, a mental health podcast brought to you by the Fulcrum and CHUO 89.1 FM. We'll be your hosts, filling in for Anshul Sharma. In this episode, Anshul spoke to advocates and activists around the city to help us unpack the issue of gender-based violence, who is victimized, and the toll it has on victims' mental health. My name is Julie Wound, and I have spent the last 16 years working to end uh, violence against women, mostly in a Canadian context. Uh, so my name is Faye Johnstone. I use she and they pronouns. I'm a educator, organizer, uh, writer, person who can never describe what I do in like two sentences, a person who lives here on unceded, unsurrendered Algonquin territory. I'm in my master's at Carleton for uh, social work. So my name is Erin Lee, and I'm the executive director of the Ottawa Coalition to End Violence Against Women. We're a coalition of frontline service providers that support survivors of gender-based violence in Ottawa, and we unite together to help promote um, prevention and public education, and we amplify the voices of frontline workers and survivors. So my name is Shauna Holmes. I am the manager of community engagement for the Elizabeth Fry Society of Ottawa. Our mission is to work with criminalized women or women who are at risk of becoming criminalized and give them the support or uh, resources or our services to help them get out of criminalization or intervene and prevent it from happening altogether. Clearly, there are various intersections when it comes to gender-based violence. But how is it defined? Is there even a singular definition? It's a two-part question, right? Gender-based violence at its core is, you know, an, a, an act, a behavior that is intended to inflict harm on another person on the basis of their gender, their gender identity, perceived gender identity, sexuality, anything under that huge umbrella that of, of gender. As for a singular definition, probably not. I'm definitely not an expert on that. And it would probably also, I'd want to give a lot of weight to whoever is experiencing something they are seeing as violence on the basis of their gender and whether or not they necessarily see it that way. Perhaps it is, perhaps it isn't, but I would want the person experiencing that victimization to be able to identify it for themselves. So gender-based violence, um, I think, is phenomenal language because it encaptures a lot of the different systems that shape the realities of folks of diverse genders, um, including trans folks, but also including cis women. Um, and so I usually define gender-based violence as all violence that is connected to systems of patriarchy 
and cis sexism um, and any other system that is connected, like linked to that system um, that shapes things like gender roles, that shapes things like the assumptions that we're all taught from a very young age around how to think and engage with gender. And so when I think gender-based violence, I think like things that are traditional, traditionally thought about include intimate partner violence, um, include like street harassment. Uh, but I also think about things like, um, you know, gender-based violence can be described as a trans young person not getting access to um, affirming healthcare. It can also be described as, um, as a, uh, something that determines the rate of poverty within trans and gender diverse communities. And so it's really, I, I love the language of gender-based violence because it really lets us open up the can of worms that is oppression and look not just at sexism as its own distinct thing, but look at how all of these systems are connected to each other. One of the biggest things that seems to influence the discussion around gender-based violence is its place in our culture today, how we talk about it. In the case of sexual violence, there are facts, like how one in five women experience sexual assault in post-secondary institutions. And then there's the reality. Oftentimes, sexual assault is seriously underreported. A 2015 report from the Canadian Federation of Students cited a student survey at the University of Ottawa that reported that 44% of female-identifying students experienced some form of sexual violence while attending the institution. There were only 10 students who reported an assault over a five-year period. So what's missing from the conversation? And how can we be better at having these conversations? That's a really good question. And certainly that's something that I think somebody like, you know, myself and the role I have and these other groups in the community that are meeting on violence against women, on gender-based violence, are doing. Because I don't think anybody really has necessarily the answer. But I think the key part is to keep talking about it. I think, um, you know, one of the myths that persist is that, you know, women who report violence are lying, they're making it up, they're exaggerating, it's about revenge. And if we can stop that discourse, if we can challenge it every time we hear it, those little drips end up eroding a larger conversation. I love what we're seeing big picture as far as, you know, the Women's March and stuff like that. It's going to get to be a problem that's too big to ignore. Um, and in that, I think we're going to be able to make that conversational change and a cultural change step by step. I'm by definition very optimistic because otherwise I truly would not be able to justify getting up in the morning and right. doing this work for as long as I have. So I really do think we are moving the marker in the right direction. But what we know about any social movement is that backlash is inevitable. Backlash is a sign of success because the establishment feels threatened. And so I do absolutely see progress in the work. And a concrete example is when I started the Draw the Line campaign in 2011, this was before Gomeshi, before Me Too, before any of these massive conversations were happening. And I would go into classrooms and I would say, I'm here to talk about sexual violence. And people would say, is that like the new politically correct term for rape? Like, I've never heard that before. Now, I go into classrooms and I'm like, I'm here to talk about sexual violence. And I was like, yeah, I know what that is. People's hands pop off right away. They understand that the police are, you know, the high rates of unfounded, that communities shun people, that your friends might abandon you, like you might lose a job. Like people really understand that it's not as simple as saying, speak out and break the silence, that there are consequences for survivors to speak out. And again, that seems small, but that tells me that people have a more nuanced view of the issue, even more than, you know, five years ago, for example. Like, we have made an incredible amount of progress in the last five years. 
So I think the conversation we've been having over the last five years has been really fruitful. I think we have come a long way in recognizing that anybody can be victimized. I think about in the context of Gomeshi, how people were like, Lucy Descouteres, like the woman that was on Trailer Park Boys, and she's now a captain in the Air Force, and she could have experienced that. So I think we've moved away from the cliche in some senses, but it's not just some you know, women who put themselves in bad positions. I mean, there's still a lot of stereotypes around that, but generally people understand that class, your age, your appearance, like these things, unfortunately, are not going to save you from being victimized. Right. However, I don't think we've done enough to really understand that perpetrators can be people who look like you and I. They are our friends. They are dads. They are people with good jobs. I, I think we still have a lot of cliche understandings of what a perpetrator is. And I don't think Weinstein helps because, frankly, he looks gross. <laughs> and I don't think we can underestimate how much of an impact that's had where people, for example, when Aziz was outed as someone who at minimum is a bad date, people had a really hard time because they're like, he's a good looking young man. You know, if you out, if the people you're outing are the Harvey Weinstein, Louis CK, like men who are not read as attractive, men who are not read as like a women's flock to you, then I think it, it subtly implies that that's what a monster looks like yeah. um, versus, you know, Kobe Bryant or Aziz or, you know, James Franco, like men exactly. who are seen as attractive and, and people, men who could, quote, get any woman that they want. And I think that that stereotype has major implications because, again, if you're speaking out against someone, never mind someone famous, but someone in your social circle that is seen as like a charming ladies man who's a good looking guy, there's still a hesitation to believe it because they think that guy can get anybody. Why would he need, quote, to insult <laughs> people to get laid? To me, what I find so interesting about the conversation on consent, where we treat particularly men on campus as these big dopey people who just don't understand what consent is. You just got to have a conversation with them. They do. I mean, there's so much evidence that people understand subtle body language and cues in non-sexual situations, but the second the situation turns sexual, we act as though it's a completely different ball of wax, and it's not. And so if we can start recognizing what boundary violations look like in public, in non-sexual context, even with people with whom you're not in a relationship or seeking a relationship, a boss, a colleague, a friend, then we can start to see that, oh yeah, it makes sense that this person doesn't listen to anything I have to say, that when I tell them, no, I'm not interested, or when I tell them, no, I don't want to do that, chances are they're not going to listen because they've never listened. Um, I think there's like billions and billions probably, but I think some of the common misconceptions are, again, this like pervasive idea that that um, folks are asking for it, that folks who like be they cis or trans women um, or anybody impacted by gender-based violence, there is this underlying idea that, okay, well, you shouldn't go outside dressed like that, or, you know, you should be more mindful of where you're going in public. And so I think about the fact that that really, again, like roots the blame in the individual and doesn't root it in the society and system we live in. There's also like misconceptions that like all trans folks um, should look and present a particular way um, that we all experience our genders in the same way. Um, and the reality is that cis and trans folks all experience our gender identities, our gender expressions in billions of different ways. Um, I do an activity with kindergartners that I love to do with any audience where I ask everyone in the room to draw their gender. There are no two people who have the exact same drawing. And that to me just demonstrates how, um, even though we, we talk about gender as this, like, you know, it's men and women and like everybody else, if we're being inclusive, no two people have the exact same gender experience. And if we can actually engage with that and unpack the misconception, um, that we do have 
a universal understanding of gender. I think it gives space for people to experience and express themselves in, in, in much more diverse and rich ways. Absolutely. And actually, when you mentioned that activity, I was picturing it. I was like, what would I draw? And that's, yeah, that's really interesting to think about. It makes like when I do this activity, like I, I talk about how gender is a social construct in my workshops, of course, right? Because gender isn't a thing you can reach out and touch. Um, but when I, when I use that example, a lot of folks in the room actually like, it's like a light bulb goes off because they start to unpack their own relationship with their gender. And so much of our work around gender-based violence and like LGBTQ capacity building doesn't actually address that. It doesn't get us to think about our own position, our own relationship to our bodies, to the genders that we are. Um, and actually like zooming in on that, I think is a really great way to unpack how we each, again, are impacted by gender systems. I think, you know, your original question about what forms of violence are there, I think that people that don't have an understanding might think that it is just physical violence, um, whereas it really can take a multitude of forms. And, you know, I think in the context of partner violence, for example, if they're, um, if somebody's experiencing partner violence, um, often people are like, well, why don't you just leave? But there's a lot of complexity to um, what decisions survivors are making when they do not leave an abusive relationship. So they might be financially reliant on their partner if they have resources, like Rihanna had resources, right? But she um, was in a violent relationship, not she didn't leave right away, and that's fine. Um, there's lots of rational reasons why people um, have to stay in a relationship. Some of it is that verbal and emotional abuse where somebody is constantly being told that they're worthless and the only person that still cares about them is their abuser. So there's a lot of different things going on. Um, another thing is that women are often, if we're talking about women or people that have um, children, they're really worried about losing custody and getting involved with the Children's Aid Society. And we certainly know that if um, you're more marginalized, that you're more likely to come into contact with the Children's Aid Society, so Indigenous folks or um, people of color. Um, and then, so then they're, you know, experiencing these intersecting barriers of both experiencing violence, but also um, experiencing racism that may put them at greater risk of losing their kids. So they're very real um barriers that people have. And so it does lead to rational decision-making within a certain context. It's not just like, well, why don't you leave? It's easy. Gender-based violence is a nuanced issue. And like anything else, has an impact on survival's mental health. So we asked, what are some of the ways organizations, institutions like universities, and even friends can support victims of gender-based violence when it comes to their mental health? Well, the first thing to do is to really think about the everyday actions that you take around these issues, it, it shouldn't be up to survivors to be constantly condemning examples of violence against women. People in their heart of hearts claim that they are opposed to violence against women, that they're allies, but they're not the ones leading the charge. They're not the ones calling this stuff out. They are letting it be survivors. They're putting the onus on them. And so even just thinking about what are you doing to advocate for those friends of yours um, is a huge, I think is a really important step. Um, and then beyond that, just being in a listening ear for that person. I mean, I was stalked for 10 years. I had really cr incredible supportive friends, but I didn't talk about it in large part because I thought I was such a burden. I mean, it's a long time to be stalked, but it's also a long time to be someone's support. And so I didn't initiate conversations about it because I thought it was burdening people. And after I came out and talked about it, people thought, you know, I would have listened. I would have been there. 
Um, it's like, then you should have initiated conversation. You should have asked and checked in and seen, seen how I was doing. And so it's, it seems cliche and a very small thing, but it's really important to let people know that you're there if they want to talk. If they don't want to talk, that's fine. But if they do, um, you know, you're there for them. Globally, the highest rates of PTSD in the world are survivors of sexual violence. Uh, and that's not understood. Most people still think that you can't really have PTSD unless you were in the military. And so it's important to recognize that these are very real responses to trauma. In my case, I was stalked for 10 years and I survived by being in deep, deep denial. And it only ended when he died very suddenly in an accident. And then everyone around me thought, oh, my dog, girl, you must be so relieved. Like, you're finally living your best life. And I spent the next year pretty much in bed. I was absolutely overwhelmed. I was terrifyingly depressed. And I couldn't understand why. And then I finally got a diagnosis of PTSD and the recognition that your symptoms often don't kick in until it's over. Hence why it's called post-traumatic. And so it's important to go and get help. I was in a very scary place and people didn't really understand because they thought, wouldn't you have been worse off when you were in it, when you were living with him, when he was constantly outside your apartment? And so just doing your own inventory to see how am I doing and not feeling ashamed to speak out, not feeling that you should be over it by now. Uh, my abuser died almost five years ago, and I still have to go to therapy. I take medication to help me sleep. And I struggled with that for a long time, but I realized finally that it's not my burden to carry. I shouldn't be ashamed. This person terrorized me, and I'm trying to put myself back together. So just a recognition that these things are very real, and if you have friends and family or a network that don't believe you that are tired of hearing about it, then find new people um, because this is not your fault. And it's a sort of subtle form of victim blaming to say that I'm annoyed by how you're reacting to your trauma or yeah. I'm sick of hearing about it. it. It sort of implies that you're choosing to put this on other people when you're not. One of the first things that organizations need to uh, become aware of or or acknowledge is, A, the degree of prevalence of that kind of violence. I don't think a lot of folks realize, because of this idea of Canada as like such an inclusive, wonderfully diverse country, um, that so many of us know has never been the case for like anybody who doesn't fit a very particular mold. I don't think folks realize, though, the degree of violence that just existing in this world as a trans woman or trans feminine person uh, can enact against you. And so even just an acknowledgement of the degree of the problem, I think, is a first step. Um, I think folks need to realize um, that when you have to worry about your safety in public, that impacts your mental health. Um, when you have to worry about where you're going to go at night, uh, about how you're going to get home if you go to a bar, um, all of those things have a fundamental impact on your well-being and your sense of safety. Uh, and so I think that is acknowledging that is a huge first step. I think also, though, organizations acknowledging the histories of our sectors and of those uh, particular organizations and institutions themselves. Um, The mental health sector has not historically been a friend to trans folks. It has demonized trans folks. It has pathologized us. It has um, forced us to jump through these like really rigid and violent hoops to prove what we know to be true for ourselves. And so I think acknowledging also the depth of the issue, but also acknowledging the complicity of these sectors in that issue is actually where we need to be to start moving forward. In terms of what we can actually do about it, um, I think there is so much that organizations can and should be doing. I think one of the main pitfalls that I've seen is that organizations do it off the sides of their desks. So, you know, they bring in a 
LGBTQ2S plus identified person and give them an hour of their time to do a 101 workshop where they learn about the word trans, they learn a definition, they learn what a pronoun is, and then they leave it there. They don't do in-depth capacity building, they don't do in-depth training. A lot of service providers probably aren't equipped to deal with particularly or like contentious issues. I don't, I've done training in like the housing sector and one of the biggest questions is what do you do if a trans man is trying to access a woman's shelter? Okay, so how do you do that in a way that acknowledges their rights and their needs? Um, and it doesn't actually end up replicating those systems and histories of violence. And they're not equipped for that because they've all just gotten this like very minimal one-on-one session. Right. Um, if organizations want to do better for trans and gender diverse folks, um, for all LGBTQ folks or everybody impacted by gender-based violence, they need an ongoing commitment that goes from their leadership all the way down to their frontline staff that brings in ongoing training um, that looks at their policies and their practices to ensure inclusion is embedded therein. And then they need to, need to build relationships. They need to reach out to LGBTQ organizations and communities that have been doing this work for ages on end and chat with them. Build partnerships, build relationships that are mutually, uh, that are reciprocal, where it's not just, you know, trans person going in and giving a one hour workshop, but it's that organization offering services and providing support to community organizations and individuals and making sure folks are compensated for their time. Um, and so I think I could go on for like, hours and hours on this one um because it's, it's the meat of most of the work that i'm trying to do but i think that's a place folks can start a really basic one is post-traumatic stress disorder is very common if you survive sexual violence and the impacts that can have um and it can lead to depression and all sorts of things so you know think about being berated for decades and the impact that's going to have on you um for example the there's a one of our member agencies is called Counseling and Family Services Ottawa, mm-hmm. and they're based in Vanier, and they have an anti-violence program dedicated to francophone women, and they have a specific group for elderly francophone women, and and there are women in their 70s and 80s getting support. Um, they may just be leaving that abusive relationship, or they may be continuing to stay in it, but still getting that emotional support through a group context. Um, you know, that's that's people that may have been in their marriage for 60 years. Um, So that's a really, really huge impact on somebody's life. And then, of course, we know in the context of sexual violence that there can be really significant impacts in terms of um, post-traumatic stress disorder. And, I mean, with the Gian Kameshi case, we saw how the, the victims who were witnesses in their cases were basically put on trial. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, their credibility was completely questioned, and there was a complete lack of understanding about um, how PTSD can impact memory. And so, because, you know, a detail changes of a color of a car, all of a sudden they're not a credible witness. My impression um, from the post-secondary perspective is that actually that is an area where there's been a lot more attention. I'd say over the last seven years, Maybe we've seen quite a shift and at the provincial level, that's where most of the services are funded at the provincial government level, including post-secondary, um, both in the education sphere, but also in this context. Um, under the Wynn government, there was a lot done in the context of post-secondary campuses. And we've actually seen under the Ford government continued, if not increased funding. Um, but it is minimal amount. So what used to happen is you had little to no resources on campus. Um, the unions, the student unions, typically were sort of the folks that had the most progressive lens on this stuff. Um, and then they would connect with community organizations for support. Now you've got a more institutional framework that's based within the university. So, um, for example, 
Ottawa U, Carleton, La Cité, and Algonquin all have people designated with responsibility for helping to prevent sexual violence on campus. Um, provincially, there's a requirement to have a sexual violence protocol and policy. And so there is a framework in place, but um, often it's, you know, a handful of people trying to mitigate and address this institution-wide um, issue. And so I think the piece that I don't know, and you'd have to speak with the campuses directly, I think one of the missing pieces, whenever we look at gender-based violence or any kind of equity and inclusion kind of framework, is that you've often got it siloed in the corner. And those folks are awesome and doing great work, but it hasn't permeated the institution as a whole. And that's because there aren't necessarily accountability measures and consequences if the institution as a whole fails. And so for me, it's like, does the president of the university get a bonus for doing a good job? Does the president of the university get dinged if they don't specifically help address sexual violence or other forms of violence on campus? I think one of the bigger challenges is with, with criminalized women in particular is that somehow because of these previous actions, they're deserving of whatever happens to them. And of course, that's not true. Nobody deserves to be in a violent situation. One of the things that I also would want to dispel is that these are women where, like, it's it's them and not us, that, that they're, they're really easily othered. And I think, uh, and one of the things that I've definitely learned working with the Elizabeth Fry Society of Ottawa is that's just not the case. It's not like that's an obviously signaled thing. It's uh, These are women like myself. The only real difference is that they've been through this horrible trauma. And also that many women who've been criminalized experience trauma in childhood, are suffering from mental illness, but we've criminalized behaviors associated with mental illness. While tackling gender-based violence is a daunting task, it doesn't come from just one organization or person, and especially not the person being subjected to it. So what can we actually do? On a personal scale, offering support is a good place to start. The Ottawa Coalition to End Violence Against Women gives people a voice and platform to do this with their campaign, Hashtag Just Got Weird. Basically, Hashtag Just Got Weird is giving people that may not talk about these issues all the time the language to unpack that funny feeling they got in their tummy that something seems off Um, and to help identify those moments when maybe there should be somebody helping or doing what we call bystander intervention. So bystander intervention is a big part of that project and is very um, a, a strong element of all of the campus work now. And it's basically where you um, don't make it the responsibility of one person, one woman to stay safe. It's actually making the whole community responsible for preventing violence. And so shifting that responsibility from what could be seen as victim blaming to actually we understand that we all have a role to play. And so the hashtag just got weird was, you know, this thing is happening. Is something off? Why don't you check in? And there's tips. that There's something called the five D's. Hollaback Ottawa uses it. Lots of folks using bystander intervention use what are called the five D's. So if you see something going on, you might just, you might um, just check in with the person and be like, hey, I saw what was going on. Are you okay? Or in the moment, maybe just insert yourself between um, somebody who's ogling someone and you stand in front of the ogler and that person that's making them feel creepy. And then you just kind of like 
cancel their gaze. So there's just sort of tips like that about what you might do. For those seeking help, John Stone suggests finding a support group or mentor. Check out your local organizations um, and find your communities. Um, the biggest thing that I can say, um, a lot of trans young folks in particular don't have supportive families. Um, they don't have supportive loved ones necessarily who are um, the ones that they grew up with. And um, that's not by any means true for everybody. But all the evidence tells us that trans young folks who have access to supportive and affirming adults. Um, and I think like that applies even when you're in university, when you're not like a 16 year old anymore. I think having access to um, older folks who can be role models and mentors to you um, has a significant, like an oh, incredible impact. Um, and so I would say check out organizations like Kind Space. Um, they provide tons of community programming for 2SLGBTQ folks in Ottawa. Check out organizations like, like the Ten Oaks Project who do what I would call like gay camp that is for 16 to 24 year olds and a phenomenal opportunity to connect with community. A lot of folks will not understand what it's like to exist in this world as a trans person and particularly not as a trans person who um, is at like exists at different intersections of violence and oppression uh, and finding people who know what that's like, um, who have been through that, um, that you can share your pain with, um, but also that you can just hang out with and like find community and other common interests with. I think that um, makes a huge difference for trans young folks. In terms of being that support, John Stone says it's okay to make mistakes as long as you work towards correcting them and acknowledging the effects of gender-based violence. I would say, first and foremost, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Um, when I train like service providers, they're all like paranoid to say something wrong. Um, and like, I get it because gender is weird and gender is complicated. Um, but it also, at the end of the day, like trans folks are people too, and we need people to talk to. Um, you can't expect that a trans person will share their entire life story with you because we are private beings. Um, but you also shouldn't be um, afraid to ask questions, to engage with curiosity and be um, accountable when you make a mistake. You will make a mistake. I have, um, I am a trans person. I am dating a trans person. I have misgendered my trans partner. Do you know how awkward it is when you do this work for a living and you misgender a, like your trans loved one <laughs> who you live with? No, I can't imagine. Like, I share this story whenever I do education because like if I can make a mistake as a trans person, like cis folks can too. Right. It's not to say that you should and like apologize and do better when you do. Um, but I worry that our, our fear of or our anxiety around gender gets in the way of the fact that trans folks are human beings and that we um, also need people to talk to and hang out with. Um, and so that, that's one thing. Um, but I would also say um, a lot of the time when we talk about like allyship, um, we don't talk about how it needs to be consistent. Uh, and so what I mean by that is um, if you're hanging out with trans folks, um, you should also, when you're hanging out with folks who aren't trans, ask them their pronouns. Right. You should be proactive about calling out transphobia when you see it. And like a lot of us don't like to admit it, but we've all been complicit in some degree of gender-based violence in our lives. Like we all exist in um, positions of both privilege and oppression. Uh, and even folks from our own communities can be violent against us. Uh, and so acknowledging that um, and stepping into that discomfort um, and holding ourselves and other people accountable when they do things that are not okay, um, I think is really important. My final thing that I would say on that is um, be with us when people aren't great to us. Um, you know, a lot of trans folks, uh, and I've like talked about this all the time, like I experienced a significant degree of, st of street harassment. It's not a pleasant experience. Of course not. Um, we need people who are there with us in those moments. Uh, we don't always need somebody who's going to like point at the person who's yelling at, at us and be like, hey, don't say that because that could just open up more violence. Right. Um, and so talk to trans folks around how they want you to respond in situations of oppression or transphobia um but also like see it 
Um, I think a lot of the time, like, I've had experiences where I've been harassed in public and people have just, like, friends of mine have just not acknowledged that it happened. Oh, wow. And they're doing that to, like, not make it worse for me, or that's what they think that they're... But when you, when you don't see it, when you don't acknowledge it that it happened, uh, it makes it feel more normal, and if that's something that you should expect. And so even if it's a small thing, say something to your friend. Maybe it's five minutes after, but say something. Um, when my partner and I are walking through center town and somebody like looks at me weird, he will literally just like squeeze my hand a little bit more. And like things like that are really small. Um, but it makes it so that you know that it's not something that should happen and that they're seeing the pain. Even if you're not like visibly uncomfortable, it means that they're seeing the fact that that was an injustice that happened right then. And I think that, uh, is, is a big part of uh, doing justice to trans folks and being there for trans folks who do go through hell. So the first thing you're going to do is listen to them and listen in a non-judgmental way. You're going to believe them and validate them that what they've experienced is happening. Um, you can offer support and offering support might look like you're there to talk or it might be that you know there's resources in the community where they can get different kinds of help. So for example, on our website, we have Lots of information about different programs against abuse and who can provide counseling and it's available in different areas. It's on the campuses, that sort of thing. So it might be that, but ultimately you're just saying, I can help you if you want. What you're doing is keeping the decision making with that survivor. You're not taking away their power again by saying you need support and telling them what to do. You're saying there's support available. I believe you. I'm here to listen to you. This is awful that it happened. How can I help you? That wraps up our episode today. A special thank you goes out to the contributors from CHUO and The Fulcrum who brought you this podcast. I'd like to thank Matt Gurdjick, Kendid Uyanse, Anshul Sharma, Sasha Laney, Alex Harris, John DiCarlo, and myself, Moira Wilson. From CHUO, I'd like to thank Omar Ben McDool and Mike Connolly. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media at underscore one in five on Twitter and Instagram and 1 in 5 podcasts on Facebook.